Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Demonland podcast. My name is Andy, and in just a few minutes, I'll be airing the interview with Paul Ruse that I conducted along with Super Mercado, otherwise known as at Demon Blog on Twitter. Um, so the interview goes for just under an hour, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the Demonland Paul Ruse interview. Tonight's guest needs no introductions, but I'll give him one anyway. He played a total of 356 games for Fitzroy and Sydney, kicking a total of 289 goals. He represented Victoria 14 times, captaining the team and taking out two EJ Witter medals. He was a five-time Best and Fairest winner at Fitzroy and was named in the team's Team of the Century and is a Hall of Famer at that club. He's a seven-time All-Australian and two-time captain of the team. He's also been inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame. He has coached 268 games with Sydney and Melbourne, winning the 2005 AFL Premiership with the Swans. He is Paul Ruse. Welcome to the Demonland Podcast. Good day, boys. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, Ruse, thank you for joining us. Uh, we know you're a busy man and we appreciate you taking the time to have a chat. Um, you're speaking to an audience that uh, wants a bronze statue of you built outside the MCG. Um, how, do you, how do you rate the Demons of 2018? And, well, can we still go all the way? Or is this side still too young and inexperienced for a flag? Yeah, look, I think they're on track for where I thought they would be. I always thought last year was going to be, you know, really on the fringe of the eight still because last year they were still probably a little bit young. I think this year it's a bit different, you know, with the competition the way it's at. I mean, we've seen the Eagles, you know, who are quite an experienced team, and we've seen Richmond, who are playing really good footy as well, even though they got beaten the other night. I think Port are an older team, as are Sydney. So, look, they're probably just a little bit below those teams in terms of age. But in terms of their uh, games experience now, uh, their body shape and size, if you look at Jesse Hogan now, you know, he's got a, a man's body, and obviously Brayshaw and Oliver and Petraka and guys like that. So, look... Yeah, my expectation at the start of the year was, you know, I always say this pending injuries, my expectation at the start of this year was there was no excuses for not finishing in the eight. And I think, you know, touch wood, they're on track to do that. And I think anything above that, to be fair, is probably a bonus where they're at. But we've seen with Richmond and the Bulldogs that, you know, once you get to the finals, anything can happen. So, look, it's exciting. And I think they're in for a really good sustained period of success. And, you know, over the next five to eight years, we should see the Deans playing in the finals, um, you know, year after year. That would certainly be uh, music to our ears after uh, after the last few years. Um, Paul, there's only 14 players left on the list from when uh, you took over the job. Um, when you arrived, did you identify sort of a, a core of players that you wanted to build around going into the future? Um, and if so, was there anyone whose progress you were actually really surprised by that might have come from outside that group? Yeah, probably the first year. I mean, it's hard when you're coming from a different club. I, I found when I coached Sydney, having played there, you already un- know the players, so you really understand their capabilities. But when you come from another club and you arrive at a new club, it's probably 12 months before you, you realise who you think is going to make it and who you, you don't. So really the first 12 months is just assessing all the talent and then at the end of that first 12 months, I think you've got a better idea. Look, I'm really pleased with the progress of Neb Jetta. I, I just think Neb, um, I happen to be watching 
Melbourne when they played the Bulldogs. I think it was late in the season the year before I took the job and, and I was really impressed with the way that he actually defended on bigger opponents. And Look, he looked a bit unfit at the time and obviously that he was defending a lot of inside 50s and I felt that he had some genuine AFL talent so he sort of hung on the list you know, when I, when I first arrived and, and Todd and Jason and I discussed him and Josh Marnie and, and gave him an opportunity. So it's great to see you know, how well he's playing. He's progressed unbelievably well you know, which is fantastic. Yeah, Maxi Gorn's another one, I guess, with knee knee injuries. You know, you never really know how they're going to respond. And I heard a lot about his talent, and you know, that's certainly come to fruition as well. So they're probably two that that stand out. I mean, Nathan Jones, I knew Nathan and respected him already, and knew what a great player he would be. Um, but probably two that you know, I love where they've got to in their footy. You know, is is Nev is potentially all Australian, and obviously Maxi is is as well. So they're two that have reached really great heights after. Yeah, probably the depth of where they were, one with injury and one you know, nearly getting delisted. Uh, and did you have a strategy for, for turning over the rest of the list, like with, with respect to the players who were on the list? There was obviously a lot of players there who weren't going to be there a couple of years later. Um, did you sort of, I, I know you said you wanted to take that first year to sort of understand more about them. Um, did you sort of have a vision in your head of um, turning over a certain amount of players every few years for the time you were at the club? Not necessarily. I've got a vision for how footy should be played, and, and probably that's the, the strongest point, you know, of a coach and a coaching group. And I brought in, you know, Ben Matthews, uh, Daniel McPherson, Brett Allison, George Stone. So they all had similar philosophies. So we really just built the player list really around the philosophies we had to, to win a premiership, you know. And, and then you give your players a chance to say, well, can you? Can you do this? Are you capable of doing it? So I didn't really have any preconceived ideas about how many players we turn over or which players they might be. I think it was really just built around if to be a premiership team, you have to do X and Y. And, yeah, we gave players an opportunity to do that over the course of the period. And obviously, as you suggested, many of them are no longer there for different reasons, you know, because we're seeing some players playing really well at other footy clubs. Lyndon Dunn, um, yeah, Jeremy Howe yesterday, um, Collingwood, um, yeah, Chip Frawley's gone on and played in the Premiership. So, you know, some left for different, yeah, situations. Watsy, you know, who left after I was playing really well for Port sort of thing. So it's not always clear cut, but the ones that I suppose we wanted to get rid of, you know, the, the ones that didn't really fit that mould of, of playing in a Premiership. So it wasn't around numbers. It was really around, you know, this is what you have to do in order to, to, to win a Premiership. And then from a recruiting point of view, you know, Jason Taylor, Todd Viney, you know, um, Josh Marnie, we're all on the same page in relation to the type of player that we wanted to bring into the footy club. Uh, Paul, what was it about the Melbourne job that ultimately attracted you to it? Uh, Because uh, as supporters, uh, we know better than most, it wasn't just the hardest gig in football. Um, You actually faced a monumental task to rescue a club that was effectively on its knees. Yeah, look, I mean, Peter Jackson and I spoke a lot and, and he didn't sugarcoat anything. He, he he let me know how difficult it really was. And that was probably, I liked his honesty. I liked the fact that they really had a, a clear understanding of, of where they were, you know, which wasn't great, as you said. And I don't have to sort of remind any of the Melbourne supporters how bad it was. So I think that was probably the first step. The second step was probably Dave Misson was there, who was... Um, you know, my fitness guy when I was at Sydney. So having a chat to Misso and, and understanding more about the player group as well. Um, meeting the leadership group was a big step. Um, chatting to them prior to taking the job and, uh, you know, the honesty that they expressed and the responsibility that they took for where the club was at. Um, and then, But they also gave me some reasons why they felt it was where it was. Um, and they were really honest. Good, good bunch of guys. 
And then I think the ability to, to bring my own staff in was pivotal as well. And, yeah, Jade Rawlings was the only contracted assistant coach. And I'm really pleased that Jade stayed. I mean, having him there was it was amazing. He was He's a fantastic coach. Um, yeah, great skill set. But having getting an insight from him into the players was great. But also to bring in, as I said, to mention the guys before, that was probably the final. You know, if I, if I hadn't have been able to bring in my own coach, it would have been very, very difficult to do. But I needed to guys that I trusted and knew that could teach the players the right way to play football. So that was probably the steps in, in taking the job. And, um, you know, as I said, as you guys said, it was a tough task, but, you know, I enjoyed it and it was very fulfilling, you know, over the course of the three years. And speaking of, of bringing your own people in, there was a lot of talk right from the start about a succession plan uh, and who was going to follow you. Uh, is, is it true to say that uh, we had serious interest in Stuart Dew um, before Simon Goodwin, but we couldn't extract him from the Swans? Yeah, look, there's probably two phases of it. The first phase was when I first took the job and we sort of spoke to a number of people, Adam Simpson included. Um, there's a few others, obviously, that, that probably people wouldn't know about. We spoke to Adam and, yeah, he obviously got the West Coast. So, so Stewie was in that sort of first phase of yeah, the discussions, but Stewie wasn't at the point where he... You know, with his family, uh, a young young family, um, his wife um, was reading the news on, I think it was Channel 7 or Channel 10 up in Sydney. So really it was more a case that he couldn't sort of leave the state of New South Wales, which was fine. So that once that first phase finished, the second phase was the following year and then we, we interviewed a number of other people and et cetera, et cetera. And, and Simon Goodman was obviously the standout in that, that process. Um, so really the second process presented us with an opportunity the first process we went through didn't for a number of different reasons um and obviously simon's been fantastic and you know, the fact that he was there for two years and and you know now has gone on to be a, a very very good coach um in his second season uh, and what sort of gave you i guess the uh, confidence that he was the right man for the job Probably the fact that he talked a lot about relationships and that was something that we were really big on the Swans boys about building relationships, talked a lot about standards, you know, like how do you build standards within a footy club. Yeah, that was another thing. So they're probably the two things. I think if you're going to be a coach now, you have to have really good relationships with your players. And also if you want to be a good organisation or whether it's corporately or football club, you have to have clear standards, clear behaviours and a clear understanding of what they are and what's expected of all the players. And they were probably the things... I was always a big Neil Craig fan, you know, I think the fact that he was captain under Neil Craig and um, I, I understood a lot of Craigie's philosophies and, and Neil had been at the footy club, Melbourne footy club as well. And so I think that was a big plus also, the fact that he'd been under a really good coach at Adelaide, being captain of a footy club as well. And I think also being at Essendon a really bad time and a tough time, I think that helped him also. Um, so there's a number of factors, but probably the main ones were the fact that he was big on standards and relationships and um, that was probably the thing that we all, uh, you know, Todd Viney, myself um, and Josh Marnie. Ruzi, you must uh, look at the current team with a lot of pride given the role that you played in bringing this group together and building them up. Um, when you handed it over to Goody, um, were you happy with the progress that had been made in your time or were there areas that didn't quite meet your KPIs or targets that you'd set? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, when you're going through the process, you tend to lift the bar a lot while you're doing it. So I think I said at my final press conference, you probably had to go back to the first press conference with myself and Peter and Glenn to really think about what we set out. And I remember saying at that first press conference, we wanted to get up around the eight and be a, you know, a 50-50 team. We wanted to get up that percentage around 100. Percentage is a really good benchmark of where you're at. So if I look back 
you know, at the start, you know, we definitely ticked all the boxes that I wanted to tick, you know, and gave a team over to a new coach that was capable of playing finals and capable of a sustained period of success. I think we ticked that box. But clearly, as you're getting into the job, you, you lift your standards and your expectations get higher. And I think we, you know, we got to 10 and 10 in the last year and we played Carlton and Geelong in the last two games. It would have been nice to win those two games and play finals. But as I said, when you look back on what we what we set out to do, Glenn, you know, uh, Peter and myself, I think we ticked the boxes and then, you know, I was able to hand over, you know, through a lot of hard work. You mentioned, you know, the recruiting. I mean, Jason Taylor was fantastic. Todd Viney was fantastic. John, Josh Marnie. So it's really a, a whole club approach. And that's what really impressed me about the footy club. They were really united, you know, even after some really tough times. And the admin staff were just amazing. You know, some of the people I met there and some of the work they did through that really tough period was great. So I think just to leave a united footy club, a club with a great list and a club that was, you know, looking forward to sustained period of success, you know, playing, you know, making finals, you know, top four and giving yourself the chance to win premierships. I think that's where they're at at the moment, which is exciting. And I think one of the most important things uh, we we talked about uh, when you arrived was building from defence uh, and cutting down the amount of goals, goals kicked against us, which was quite extreme uh, for the couple of years before that. And we definitely saw a big drop in points against. Um, I think at one point during your first season, we were actually conceding less points in a game than any time since about the 1960s. Uh, but was there, did you have a frustration at the other end where our attack seemed really toothless um, for a while? Um, I think possibly just bad luck in losing uh, Jesse Hogan uh, and Mitch Clark unexpectedly. Uh, but was that, was that sort of the reason or did we have to just tip the balance more towards defence first before we worked on attack? Yeah, look, it's always a hard thing to do, I guess, you know, um, probably there's definitely a focus on contested ball, you know, that's where the game starts, so we had to focus on that, which now you can see how good they are at contested ball, but you're right, you, you know, I think they were leaking about 122, 130 points a game, and I think we got it down to, the, you know, six, six goals better in the first season, so, and look, what you notice, and, and it's really interesting watching the Suns play and some of the other teams down the bottom, your midfield is is so, um, it so drives both your defence and the tax, but if you if you're really focusing on defence, your midfielders tend to be exhausted because it's hard for them to one run two ways when they're young or they haven't been taught to do it. So if you're running really hard defensively, you're able to stop the opposition. But then when we get the ball, you want to run hard offensively. And it's just some players are incapable of doing it, particularly if they're younger guys. The older guys need to be taught how to do it. And look, Daniel Cross was pivotal in that. That's why we brought Crossy in. Crossy's two-way running as a midfielder was elite. So we used him as a great example. But you have to teach players how to do it. And I think that's where the Suns are going through that at the moment, you know. And if you don't get either right, you can't score and you can't defend, you know. So really there was a big focus on defence. And I think you're right. We, we lost Mitch Clark. We lost Chris Dawes early in the season. We lost Jesse Hogan. So we had three of, yeah, that was probably an area when we looked at the side going into the season my first year, we thought, well, at least we'll be able to kick some goals. Um, but it turned out the other way. So, look, it's just unfortunately, you know, it really is part of the process. If you look at you know, good teams, they just have the ability to run two ways and create you know, offence out of their defence. And, yeah, you know, it's just something we weren't capable of doing. But we worked really hard over the three years in order to get it right. And was that kind of why we had to play James Frawley in attack? Was it more out of necessity uh, just because we'd lost all those other blokes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, there was probably a point there we just sort of thought, well, you know, how are we going to score? You know, how are we going to create scores? Because it wasn't fair on some of our forwards. We just didn't have any big power forwards. So, look, Chip did a really selfless job. You know, he's probably our best defender. But 
the fact that we had sort of Lyndon Dunn and Cole Gull and, and a few of the guys that could defend really well one-on-one meant that we could throw Chip forward at times and he created some goals for us. And he was pretty, yeah, he was quite, quite a serviceable forward at times. He did a really good job in limited supply. So, look, we really had to manufacture our forward line at times. You know, often we were playing a, a Matty Jones and a Rowan Bale as sort of defensive half-forwards and they were doing really good jobs, you know, just taking out the opposition, um, you know, best sort of defenders. The win we had down at Geelong, I think, in the second year, you yeah, they we basically tagged both the halfback flankers. I think it was Corey Enright was one of them. We took them out. So yeah, look, we had to be really creative at the other end of the ground in order to try and score. But yeah, certainly the first stage was was contest, and then stopping teams from scoring, and then building from there. Paul, you you spoke a bit about Neville Jetta before. Um, his career seemed destined for the scrap heap at the end of 2013. Uh, you came in, you gave him a second chance. Uh, he's now, now come, become one of the game's most reliable small defenders. Uh, he's in contention, as you said, for all Australian again this year. Can you tell us a little bit more about Nev and that, what sort of happened sort of at the end of 2013? Because Nev's uh, one of the fan favourites down at Demonland. Yeah, I just remember when we were talking about a list, and, and to be fair, I think Titan and Jace were reasonably positive about him, but I, I, I mentioned to them, as I said, the game I saw him play, and, and during our discussions at the end of the season, they asked me, look, what I think about Nev Jett, and I said, guys, I think there's something I see in him that's really positive, and we talked about the game that he played, and they said, yeah, look, it was a, a really positive game against the, the Dogs, and yeah, probably because we were, to be fair, we were reasonably limited in talent, you know, the talent that he had, you know, that we, we see now, you know, he had the ability to tackle, he had the ability to win one-on-one contests, he was probably just reasonably unfit so after the discussion we had, we all agreed to give him another opportunity and then we spoke to Nev about just getting fitter, you know he had to get fitter in order to play AFL football otherwise he was going to sort of wither on the vine, you know, but he did that you know, to his credit, he worked extremely hard over the next, you know, two or three years and, you know, could be turned into, as you said a guy that, yeah, he's a very, very good one-on-one defender, very good ball user, makes really good decisions, simple decisions with the ball. I mean, he's got a great skill set. So once his sort of professionalism and his training standards started to lift, you know, we saw, you know, what a great player he can become. So it's really exciting when you see that happen and players have to make the choice to, in order to be AFL players and he made the choice that he wanted to and, you know, he's extended his career by, you know, could have been all over, as you said, at the end of 2013, but he's extended his career now to be one of the, you know, the premier defenders in the competition. And I think one of the, the, the cliches almost that we talk about as fans is Nev taking on players who are significantly <laughs> larger than him. Um, he seems to be, be really strong at filling those gaps when, um, when a, you know, a bigger defender, a bigger attacker forward needs to be, um, to be shut down in a contest. Uh, he, he can make up a lot of space and he can really um, impact the contest. Is that part of what you enjoyed watching him do? It's interesting because when during my second year, I think it was of coach, we we did the um, the camp up at um, uh, Malula Bar, and we we get a, a cherry picker, and I used to watch training and watch game simulations from up in the cherry picker, and had a walkie-talkie and spoken to other coaches. And his positioning as a defender, really, it was amazing. Like he's probably he's probably one of the smartest defenders in terms of his positioning and some of the things that he actually did is very hard to teach because what he was able to do is, is, is make the kicker kick the hardest possible kick. And just to explain that, you know, you know, he would always position himself in the, the spot where he felt he had the best chance to defend his defender. 
and the fact that he made the kicker, you know, kick the, the hardest kick, whether that's a kick across the body, you know, forced him onto his left foot, you know. So he had a great capacity to be able to do that. So watching him from the cherry picker, I was, I was sort of in awe of, you know, just his ability to read the play. So even at training, he was always in the right spot and, and that translated into game day. And what you see now, he's worked on really, really hard and you still see him now, even even one-on-one contest, which is really hard to defend, at least he makes the kicker make a really, really a good kick in order to get it to his opponent and sometimes you know he gets beaten because of that but he never gives the kicker an easy and that's why he's able to read the cues he's able to get across and help his teammates he's able to defend one-on-one so he's one of the smartest defenders that i've ever seen you know and had the the pleasure of coaching uh speak speaking of defenders um obviously the we had the big loss uh, of jake lever during the bulldogs game um i guess as a coach if you're in a situation like that, do you go out and look for someone on the list who can fill the same role as the play you've lost? Or is it a case of going back to the drawing board middle of the season and saying, what can we do with our defence now to cover the loss of a player like Lever? Look, probably the simplest thing is to try and put in a player that does a similar role. You know, I mean, but that that can be quite difficult because, you know, obviously if they're, they're that good at it, they'd be in the team, you know. So that's the simplest way to do it. Um, but having said that, I think you can you can then adjust accordingly depending on your personnel sort of thing. So, look, I think the fact that Jake had been playing really good footy over the last four or five weeks, you know, meant that they, they're certainly going to miss him. But equally, the fact that he's only been here for half a season probably helps plug that gap because the players still aren't really, you know, if he'd been there three and a half years and, you know, was a Mitch McGovern type who really cemented his role on the team, then it becomes a lot harder to do. Um, I'm not suggesting, you, you know, it's really easy to cover him, but it is easier when he's in his first year. And look, obviously, the first month, you know, he really struggled and he, he struggled to get, you know, involved in, you know, he, he sorted that out. So it is a loss, but I don't think it's insurmountable because of the fact that he's only just got to the footy club. So I think, you know, with guys like Frost and, you know, we saw Joel Smith the other day, you know, uh, Mitch, uh, Michael Hibbert can change his role a little bit. Um, so you've got options you can use. And depending on who you're playing, you know, some of the teams now only have one one tall, you know, the Premier's Richmond. Now, obviously, Oscar McDonald goes to Jack Rewald, and then you've got, you know, smaller intercept, you know, Nev can play as an intercept defender as well. Um, so, look, there are things you can do. I don't think they've got the actual player to, to just plug in and replace his role. So I think they'll be looking at different ways against different opposition to set up different defensively. Uh, Rosie, uh, were you tempted at all along the journey to extend your tenure? Did you ever think... If I just stick around for another few years, I, c- I can lead them to the promised land and pick up a flag? <laughs> well, that was probably the first question that Glenn Bartlett <laughs> asked me and, and probably the first question that Simon Goodwin asked me as well. And both those guys you know, said, look, oh, you know, if it gets to the end of the third year and we're going really, really well, you know, um, you're going you're to stick around. Um, and I was clearly hoping that we're going really, really well. Um, so that was my expectation. So it wasn't like I hadn't thought about the prospect of, uh, but that was the goal for me was to actually have the club going well and then to walk away. So it was never to, you know, I never 
sort of coveted the, the glory per se of, you know, winning a premiership would have been nice, but it, I knew it wasn't going to happen in three years. So, look, the plan was there, but I think people were always a bit sceptical to saying, yeah, but if they become a good team, you know, you'll stick around. But, but look, I was really clear on what I wanted to achieve and why I was going there. And, you know, I said the same thing to Glenn Bartlett as I said to Goody. No, look, my expectations are we will be good at the end of the three years and then my expectations will be I'll leave and hopefully, you know, Simon Goodwin, you know, we'll get the the Premiership Cup and Nathan Jones, and I think I said at the, at my last function, the best and fairest. Look, I'll be, you know, the happiest person at the MCG if I can see Nathan and, and Goody holding the Premiership Cup up and uh, Glenn Bartlett, Peter Jackson, whoever it is. Um, you know, it's a whole club, you know, exercise when you're trying to get to where you... So, no, there was never ever any thought of it. I was really pleased that, um, you know, we got to 10 and 12 at my last year and got to the position we did, and I was really, you know, excited about the future when I left the footy club. Uh, I guess one of the one of the big hits we've seen in the last couple of years under Simon Goodwin has been Tom McDonald going forward. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it came out of necessity last year when we didn't have Jesse Hogan, um, but obviously he was very uh, very rare goal kicker um, under your reign. Um, did you ever feel a hint of potential as a goal kicker, um, or was it just a case that at the time he was too important in uh, playing a role in that defence to even even think about throwing him forward? Yeah, look, I think, as I said, over that three-year period, I think we're still still learning about players. You mentioned Chip Frawley. We sort of put Chip forward, you know, in the first year because, he, you know, he was an experienced player and a senior player and we felt that he could do the roles. Other guys like Tony McDonald, we're still learning what their, their capabilities were. And I think over the journey, you, you sort of saw Tom's evolution, you know, um, you mentioned about Jesse Hogan not being there at Piers last year. I mean, he always had a good skill set for forward, I think, you know, and, and playing defence can be a really good entree to going forward, you know, knowing where Blake's position. I think that probably the thing that, well, I don't know whether surprise is the right term, but at times, you know, he wasn't a, a great decision maker coming off half back and it could turn the football over. But his goal kicking is elite. I mean, he's an elite goal kicker, which is, you know, a little bit of a, a contradiction. But look, mechanically, he's actually quite a good kick. It was probably more about his decision making coming off half back. So I think he had the skill set. He's a very good mark. He's an elite, elite runner. So you need that as a forward. And I think the fact that Jesse's there has really helped him this year. And he, he played a one out role a lot last year. So yeah, look, the skill set was all, always there. And it's exciting for Melbourne supporters what he's been able to do, and he's become a very, very good forward. And his goal kicking, as I said, he very rarely misses, which is which is fantastic because it means that he's even more dangerous when he gets the ball forward than perhaps what he was when he got the ball in defence. I guess when you've only got one, only got one option when you're kicking for goals, it yeah, uh, takes, the, takes the decision making <laughs> side out of things. Uh, what do you think about the the tactic they're implementing, where he tends to play on the wing for a few minutes at the start of a quarter? Yeah, I'm probably a bit more of a traditionalist. You know, I, I think, you know, if I'm an opposition coach and I see Tommy McDonald starting on the wing, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands together, you know, um, as opposed to starting forward. But, look, I can understand, you know, the the, the, the sense behind it, but I, I tend to like to play my players where they play really, really well. And I think we saw against Collingwood that once he moved forward, he kicked six goals on the wing. You know, he, was, he was sort of wasn't that effective. You know, he's, he's definitely a better forward than he is wingman. But, you know, um, I, I see the reasons behind it, but I tend to like to see the players play in the positions they play their best, their best footy and it gives you the best chance to win. There's a lot of discussion among Melbourne supporters about Clayton Oliver and just how good he is. 
How do you rate him and uh, where do you see him in terms of the rest of the competition as a young talent? Yeah, it's funny, and I've told this story before, but I'll probably have to go back to, I think it was about six or seven weeks to go in the season, and, and I had a bit of time up the sleeve, and I just said to Jason Taylor, I said, look, can you give us a look at some of the players? And he, he gave me a list of sort of, you know, 10, 10 players to, to look at. Um, I didn't know much about them, and I just looked through the, the 10 players, and I walked back out, and I said, tell me about Clayton Oliver. Where do you think he'll go in the draft? So I think at that stage, they were sort of talking a late first-round pick, and I remember saying to Jason, I said, geez, if there's... You know, 15 players better than Clayton Oliver in the draft. It must be a very, very good draft. I mean, he just had elite skills around the stoppages. And, and I think the unknown about Clayton, you know, I think he went into his last season with a bit of OP. You know, he was a great runner. So as he moved through the season and started to get a lot more of the ball and started to run and spread a bit more, his obviously draft number went down. And, you know, when we got to, to our pick, you know, I think it was a no-brainer, the skill set that he had. And we can see him now. And, you know, as he, as he gets fitter and fitter and fitter, I'd probably still like to see him kick the ball a bit more. And even we saw him, you know, Monday against Collingwood, you know, he had times where he's streaming out of the middle and he, he tends to overhandle. He's always going to be a better handball than he is kicking. He's always going to be an inside player. So I don't think it's enormously out of whack, but I think that's probably the area that he can improve on. I've got no doubt he'll be able to go forward and kick goals because he's, he's very good vertically over overhead. He's a you know, 189 centimetre, so he's a big kid. But yeah, look, I love him as a player. He's a fantastic player and he's, he's developing a real pro. I understand through talking to people at the footy club, he works extremely hard. He's going to get better and better and yeah, it's very exciting to watch him play and he's just one of a number of really exciting young players that they got at the footy club. I think one of the things that we all noticed right from the start, those first couple of practice games he played were the quick hands. Uh, he might not have had the tank yet, but he was uh, he was gathering in traffic and seemed to almost have a sixth sense of where his teammates were in his first or second game that he was, was playing for us. Um, is that sort of just natural instinct on his behalf, natural football instinct? Yeah, look, that's what he did at the attack tub level. I've seen very few players that have that un- incredible ability to hit the hit the stoppage at pace, take the ball without fumbling at all. He's very much like Joey Kennedy from the Sydney Swans. He's very much like Paddy Cripps, you know. So he had that ability, which was quite an elite, elite ability at under-18 level, and then he's been able to transfer that into to AFL football. But he never fumbled. He always finds the right option generally when he's under pressure. He drags a couple of defenders, you know, a couple of you know, tacklers in, which allows a, another midfielder to be free. Um, and as, as you said, as he develops his tank, he's going to keep getting better. But that elite, elite um, stoppage skill is, is very powerful, and we've already seen that in his short time in AFL football. Ruzi, if I could take you back to a particularly memorable game uh, we played against Essendon in 2014, where Christian Salem capped off that end-to-end move that involves several players to, to kick the winning goal. Um, as a coach, when you're watching that sort of unfold in the, the last minute or two of a game, is there anything you can – is there anything you do do or do you just hold your breath and wait for it to, to unfold? Yeah, look, it, it sort of came from a, a defensive action. I think it was – might have been Cam Pedersen or Bernie Viz. Someone made a tackle in the back pocket. And I think the most exciting thing about that is something we'd really practice a lot, you know, the chain of handballs and overlap run. And we talked about it before, the ability to defend and attack, and it's very – but I remember sitting in the box thinking as Christian Market, that's that's something we've trained over and over and over again. So those little wins in that first season offensively were really – 
really good. You know, we showed obviously that piece of vision, you know, with the tackle, with the follow-up, you know, three or four or five, six players getting involved in the chain and then all of a sudden a little chip kick to, to Christian Salem. So I think that was probably the most exciting thing about it. You know, in the first year, you know, the little wins that we had over the course of the season had to be celebrated and the way we wanted to play had to be celebrated. And, and that moment, obviously kicking the goal was fantastic from from Christian and winning the game. But that passage of play was something that we worked really hard on. It did, we didn't see it a lot in the first year because of the fact that we had to defend and didn't have the energy to attack as well. But that was a real big tick for the players and, and gave them obviously some confidence you know, moving forward. And do you just move on from memorable moments like that pretty much straight away? Because I think I'll, I'll be speaking on behalf of many Melbourne fans to say that's something, I've, a passage of play I've probably watched about 50 times in the last four or five years. Uh, is it something that you just tick off and move on to the next thing after after that week? Yeah, probably after the week. I must admit, it's probably more those things I think about after I finish coaching. When you look at, you know, I went to the game, you know, on Queen's birthday and watched the game. And I still watch it a little bit from a coach's point of view. And I still look back to those little moments. Yeah, I think beating Hawthorne at the MCG when I think we kicked last uh, six goals, the win at Cadinia Park when we beat Geelong, which was against all odds. I mean, they're all building to the moments, you know, the big moments they're going to have, you know, hopefully in finals. And obviously they didn't win against Collingwood, but they're all building. I think it's probably more when I finish, yeah, yeah, when you're actually coaching, you look at them, you show the players, you talk to them, and then you move on pretty quickly to the next week. But I guess now when I reflect, you know, when I go to a game like I did on Monday and I reflect on you know, where they are at a footy club. You're certainly looking back on, on key moments, you know, um, whether that be personnel, recruiting, the things we've talked about today, or, or key, key moments, key games, key quarters, those sort of things. So, yeah, it probably happens more now than what it did when I was actually coaching them. And that, that was probably the high point of uh, 2014. Everyone got a bit overheated. I remember a, a betting company came down to Amy Park with a, a cardboard cutout of you as the Messiah. Uh, but from there, we sort of lost. I think we lost the last ten of the season. Was it just a case of that group, young, just being young and just hitting the wall after going so hard in the first half of the season? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting now, again, when I'm reflecting on Melbourne and looking at teams like Carlton and looking at teams like Brisbane Lions and looking at teams like um, yeah, Gold Coast Suns, it's a long year. It really is. The games are really long. When I was coaching Sydney, I never felt that. You never felt that it was a long year. You never felt they were long games because obviously the the last five minutes of a quarter when I was coaching the Swans allowed us to, to catch up. You know, you kick two or three goals. The last five minutes, and I don't have to tell you guys, of a lot of those games in the first year, we'd, we'd go from you know, maybe a goal in front or a goal behind and not suddenly you look at the scoreboard at quarter time, half time, three quarter time, you'd, you're four goals behind. So you realised how long the season was, you realised how long the games were. I think that's just a result of when you're a young team, when you're a developing team. Yeah, we won four games in the first year and I think, you know, Chris Fagan's in his second year and just, you know, they've still only won one game, you know. Brendan Bolton's in his third year, and I think they've won, what well, have they won one game as well? So, you know, when we look back, I think it was just where we were at as a footy club then. We'd won two games the year before with a percentage of 54, I think it was. So, yeah, look, those last 10 games, whilst they were frustrating, it was just sort of part of the development and part of the conditioning and part of seeing who was going to, you know, had resilience and was going to keep fighting and fighting and fighting. So, yeah, I think the first. Uh, 12 games were good, you know, four and eight. And in the last 10, we had some good moments, but we had some really bad moments in the back end. And um, it was just part of the development of the team. Um, 
tell us a little bit about the veil of negativity. Uh, we uh, supporters have got our own name for it. Uh, it's the MFC supporter syndrome. Um, <laughs> how, how do you overcome it? Because the list that you took over, the club that you're coaching, they were shell-shocked from two years of constant thrashings. Uh, what would have happened if you had failed? Did you ever contemplate that that might happen, that you couldn't bring the team, team back up? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, as I said, getting to know the players, and, and I think some of the players there, the reason they, they're not there anymore is because that five or six years was so hard for them. When you come to a footy club you, as an 18-year-old and you're getting beaten every single week and you're not getting taught the right way to play, it's very hard to change your habits. So a lot of the players that aren't there anymore were, were a result of the fact that they just couldn't overcome the mental scars and how difficult it was and how hard it was to change the habits that they had you know it's funny even now it's interesting after they got beaten by Collingwood on the weekend and I've read a couple of um, on Monday a couple of things about oh it's just the same old Melbourne I can't believe people even mentioned that I mean the, the as you mentioned the players wouldn't even remember that pre-2013 Clayton Oliver wouldn't have a clue what happened there neither would, would Angus Brayshaw or Christian Petraka I think it's just the industry that we're in. You know, until you win a premiership, it was like Richmond, oh, they're always going to finish ninth. Until you win a premiership, you know, people are always going to say, oh, is it a reality check? Is it the same old Melbourne? This is a completely different football club. You know, there's not even any similarities between what it looks like now and what it was when I took over in 2013. So even to make those analogies, and I think I sort of said at the time, look, I understood that you know, why? I mean, I'm a football fan as well. You know, I'm not just a coach and a player. You know, I'm a football fan. So I understand the weight that the coaches carry, even though I only took over in 2000, you know, going into 2014. Clearly, you know, I felt the expectation. I felt responsibility for the previous six years. I hadn't even been there, but, I, but you still feel that responsibility. So you want to get there in a hurry because you understand what the, the, the supporters have been through and you understand when you lose, it's, oh, it's the same old Melbourne. You know, so I understood why it existed and, and hopefully it no longer exists. And I hopefully when, you know, when Melbourne just get beaten by Collingwood on Monday, Collingwood played really well and Melbourne didn't play as well. You know, that's where it's at at the moment, not, you know, same old Melbourne. The old Melbourne's gone, done and dusted, finished, and, and that will never reappear again. And I'm, I'm thankful to be part of that change. And, you know, I think until probably, unfortunately, until we win a premiership that uh, people are still talk about as they did with Richmond, as they did with Sydney, you know, when there was 72 years and as they did with the Bulldogs, I guess is, that's just the reality of the industry that we're in. Speaking of the uh, the famous Vale, um, could you tell us about the second last game of 2016, which was, which was against Carlton? Um, uh, we were we were hanging on to a, a hope in the finals race after that win over Hawthorne, uh, but sort of turned up and just didn't didn't play against a lowly team. Um, was it another case of a side just hitting its physical and mental limits um, towards the end of the season, or did it was there any pressure felt by the boys um, to stay in the race? Yeah, look, it's hard for me to tell, absolutely. But it's interesting when I look back on the Carlton side, and even talking to Brendan Bolton, I did a really good interview with them a couple of weeks. They were a pretty experienced side in that 2016 season. I remember looking at their team going into that team. We were a really young team. And I think, again, uh, talking to Glenn Love from Champion Data, you know, just reading, we probably didn't realise how young we were in 2016 until you actually get to the end of the season. And you look at, I think we were like, the at one stage we'd feel the youngest team for for the whole weekend and that was about round 18 or 19 of 2016 so we were a really young team Carlton were a really experienced team 
as it turned out. So we sort of did the rebuild a little bit differently to what Carlton have tried to do. And I think it was. I think if you look back on it, as much as, you know, we wanted to win that game, clearly, you know, and I think the reason I say that is more the, the following week as well. You know, when I went down, we went down to, you know, Geelong, Cadinia Park, and we just didn't give a yelp at all. And I looked at the players at halftime and three-quarter time. They were just exhausted, you know, after really big years. I think we were 7-10. and 10. We won three in a row, including, I think it was Hawthorne, poured over in, in Adelaide. You know, we had three really big weeks. Started off, I think, Gold Coast when Watsy kicked a really critical goal to get us to eight and yeah, then it was, I think it was Hawthorne and Port from memory. So, yeah, look, I think if I look back on it, there's always, I mean, you're always really critical even as a coach, you know, when you're involved in that situation. It's probably not so you can take a helicopter view when you, you're out of it. We can go, yeah, look, I think there was reasons behind that. You know, we're a young team, just had given our all for 20 weeks and then it just fell apart. And I think that's more the reason rather than the sort of same old Melbourne. And, you know, even the Collingwood game, had people talk about when I wasn't there last year, you know, look, I think you've got to respect the competition. You know, you've got to respect where the competition's at. You've got to respect where Collingwood are at as a footy club as well, you know. Um, so, look, there's reasons behind it. You know, now there's no excuses for not playing in the, the eight. That's the box they've got to tick first, and I think they'll tick that box this year. You know, if we can make the finals this year, then we're really well on track for, for doing, as a footy club, what we, we set out to do five, you know, four or four and a half, five years ago. Something I noticed during your time uh, at the club was in the pre-season, we tend to play quite a lot of our, our best 22 in all the practice games. Um, there was a couple of years there where I think Max Gorn pretty much played first ruck for 95% of all the practice games. Uh, was that a, a deliberate decision to get games into the group? Um, and did you sort of identify the potential balance of getting the games into the group versus the risk of fade-outs towards the end of the year? Yeah, it's a good question because it's probably very different to Sydney. Very Sydney, we didn't play many of our good players yeah, in the first um, pre-season game. We just built up slowly. But we had an experienced group at Sydney and we, we took the approach that we're probably going to play finals and we wanted to get it right. We wanted to make sure the players were fresh. Whereas at Melbourne, it was you yeah, had to use the three games as rehearsals. You had to do that in order to teach the players how to play footy. So there was probably a bit of that. We really didn't think too much about the back end of the year at Melbourne. We really thought about how do we get the, the players playing well for round one, how do we get our best team on the field for round one, how do we educate the players. So it's certainly a very different philosophy. And that might have had a bit of an impact as we got to towards the end of the season. Um, yeah, I guess that's the unknown of what we tried to do, but we had to use those practice games as as practice games and rehearse full dress rehearsals for round one, uh, which is something we probably didn't have to do at, at Sydney. Um, we traded for Jake Melsham at the end of 2015 and after starting in defence, uh, he became a very successful forward. Uh, where, do you, where did you see him playing when, when he was recruited? Yeah, I remember seeing Jake as a young kid. We had pick, when I was coaching Sydney, we had pick six and pick 14, I think it was. And Jake was in that draft. And we so I watched a lot of him and I really liked him. He was a midfielder as a, an underage. He had a fantastic final series, a really good season. And we were nearly drafting him. And I mentioned this to Jake when I spoke to him. We nearly drafted him when I was at the Sydney Swans. I clearly had lost his way through the Essendon you know, drug um, period there, which was really disappointing for the majority of the players, obviously, uh, being well documented. 
and it, so he clearly lost his way in terms of confidence. Goody really liked him. Goody was a big fan of his, had a lot to do with him at Essendon, as was I. So we were on the same page in terms of recruiting him. Obviously, the first year he didn't play, you know, um, and then had to find his feet last year. And I think it was just a matter of moving him around, where he could play, what his best role was. And I think it took him 12 months to get back into footy, you know, get his enjoyment back, enjoy training, get playing with the boys, getting with the group. And he's had a fantastic season this year. So probably surprised me a little bit as a forward because I saw him more as a midfielder. But he, as you can see, he's hard, he's tough, he can mark it, he's good on both sides of his body with his kicking. So the skill set we're seeing now is what I saw of him as a kid and I think the best footy he played at Essendon was similar. And But yeah, look, he's had a fantastic season in 2018 and it's really pleasing to see. He's a terrific guy and it's great to see some of those guys playing good footy that went through that really difficult period of, at Essendon. And he's just one of the sort of good recruits we've had over the last uh, few years. I guess Daniel Cross came almost free, free, and then uh, Bernie Vince came at uh, a, a draft pick. Um, were there any other players we were in the mix for but didn't get? I remember there was some uh, hot rumours going around about us having a, a crack at Dustin Martin when it looked like he might leave Richmond at the end of 2014. Um, I guess any truth to that and any other players that uh, you did go, go after and weren't able to land? Look, I think the good thing about, you know, when I first got there in 2000, the end of 2013, is I think even managers and players sort of saw us had changed that Peter Jackson had made a really good change to the footy club and Glenn Barton made a really good change. So the first stage was Crossy and Bernie Vince and both those players were really keen to come to the footy club and that was a really good tick for Todd, Todd Bonney and Jason Taylor and Josh Marnie and PJ and, and everyone. So, so immediately I think there was a little transformation with what had gone on in the footy club. But to get Crossy and Bernie can't be under understated you know to get those two experienced players to the footy club I think was a real pivotal moment and a turning point so look to answer the question the majority of players that we sort of wanted to come you know, came to the footy club I think there was a few that we missed out on clearly but um, you know I won't mention you know those names because you know when when you're talking to, to players you know you're often talking to a lot of players and some we were realistic chance some we weren't but look the majority of players were really keen to come and really have made a difference to the footy club so I think that's been the exciting thing, you know, the number of players that have come in and made an impact. But it really did start with Bernie and Crossy. And I think the fact that those two, as experienced players, respected players in the competition, I think a lot of players subsequent to them said, well, if Daniel Cross will go and play for Melbourne, if Bernie Vince will go and play for Melbourne, you know, then they must be a club we want to go and play for. But their impact has been enormous, both on-field and off-field, and, and to the psyche of the club and, and the direction the club's had and, and the message that that's sent to other players throughout the, the football world that this is a club we want to go and play for. So I think that was really, really exciting and pivotal moment for the club that when those two boys agreed to join us. Um, speaking of Richmond, um, how close did we come to trading out uh, Jack Trengove to the Tigers um, at the end of 2014? Um, I'm not sure if you want to say based on what you just said, but uh, are you able to reveal now if the idea was to trade to gather picks for a shot at uh, Dangerfield or was there any other big deal looming? Look, I always have the, this philosophy and I say this to the players and everyone's tradable. I think 
And I said this to Sydney guys, and I think there's this misconception because there's this veil of secrecy that goes around and, oh, has he been talked to, has he been talked to? And, I, and we, we got a phone call about Jack, and I rang Jack, and I said, look, you know, Richmond have, have rung and inquired about you, Jack. And, and I, I, I like to speak to them personally when this happens, and I and I rang Jack, and I said, mate, look, what, what, nothing ventured, well, nothing gained. He said, no, look, I agree. He said, look, let's just see where it goes. Let's see where, you know, what they come up with. And he was really um, appreciative of the phone call I made and probably appreciative of the honesty and the, and the opportunity that maybe Richmond presented itself. And then he went to the medical, and that's when we, we all found out that he had the really bad um, you know, um, stress fracture in his foot. Um, so hence, because of that medical, um, you know, obviously Richmond didn't go ahead with it. We didn't really know where that was going to go. Um, it was really just an early discussion, and, and we might have said, look, we want to keep him based on what they came back with. But... I'm always open and honest with the players. I think the players understand that we try and do the best thing for the footy club, but also the best thing for them as well. Through that process, as I said, we found out about the foot injury. And then, you know, look, Jack Trengove, I can't speak highly enough of he and Jack Grimes. I mean, they were just outstanding human beings, great players for the footy club. And I hope, and I'm sure they do, but I said this both when I left the footy club, I grabbed them both in before I left and said, guys, don't underestimate the impact you guys have had on this footy club. Their honesty, their transparency, their real will and want for the footy club to be successful. And I know both those boys aren't there, but look, let me tell you this, that if the club wins a premiership, it'll largely because of their efforts in the, in the formation years. You know, throwing two young blokes as captaincy was lunacy, was ridiculous, was not fair to those two players, which meant they couldn't really develop their own craft. But they're, they're outstanding human beings and they've had a magnificent, significant impact on the footy club. Uh, and there was another significant win that you discussed earlier, which was that uh, victory against Geelong at Cadinia Park in, in 2015. Now, that was the day Max Gorn went from promising Ruckman um, to having never looked back since. Uh, what do you credit with his rise to becoming one of, if not the best Ruckman in the league? Yeah, it was a funny period. I think it was a time where he was playing a bit of seconds and he probably wanted to play seniors and obviously how they all do. And we made him sort of play a bit more and we gave him some instructions. We need him to see him you know, mark the footy more. And, and, you know, I think he probably disagreed with, with how we were handling him. Look, I love Max. He's a fantastic guy. And then, yeah, look, it culminated with that effort at, at, at Geelong when we won the game and he was just unbelievable, outstanding. I think what we saw there was the skill set that we now see and he does that consistently. But I always you always have to give credit to the player first and foremost because yeah, yeah, they have to have a desire to be successful and even when they're getting frustrated they have to turn that frustration into training and into working on their craft and into getting better week in week out and, and Max has, has done that and that's a credit to him he made the decision to be a great player he made the decision that he wanted to have an impact on the footy club and I'm so pleased to see the way he's playing now but that was a, yeah look, that was a memorable win coming back down the highway and gave players some confidence on that day that we can beat you know, one of the best teams in the competition on their home field. And we, we obviously played some, some great footy that day and, and Max had a fantastic day. And I think with Max, one of the, the important things we see now is that he's got that ability to pop up forward and in defence um, and, and just act as an extra tool as he goes through down there and pretty competently as well. Um, was that something you guys worked on that you wanted him to be have more impact at the two ends of the ground as well? Yeah, absolutely. We felt probably one of the weaknesses was his marking. You know, he'd get his hands on the ball and then all of a sudden he started marking it at Casey, getting down the line, getting forward. And that was the moment we really thought, let's let's pick him now. And we can see that now. I mean, his work rate 
is phenomenal. You know, his ability to get around the ground, as you said, to impact in defence, to, to go forward and take marks. I mean, he's really is one of the premier ruckmen in the competition, but it's based on how hard he works in the game, how hard he works on his craft. And, yeah, but it all started, I guess, back probably even in Casey when we tried to encourage him to go for his marks. Look, he's six foot ten, six foot eleven, and once he gets his hands in the air, it's really hard to stop. So his progression has been fantastic to, to you know, one of the elite ruckmen in the competition. Uh, flashing back to your playing career, um, Alan Jakovic uh, is one of the great MFC uh, icons of that era. Uh, we were lucky enough to uh, interview him uh, last year. Uh, do you have any memories of playing against him? Yeah, he was probably more than deep forward, but I, gee, I remember how athletic he was. He just... He was sort of a bit like Russell Robinson, wasn't he? They were sort of similar sizes, and and but his explosiveness, his ability to kick goals from nowhere, or his ability to mark it—he was sort of that in-between forward that I think everyone felt. Where is he going to play? But gee, he had some amazing impact on the game. He had this extraordinary skill set for a sort of an in-between size forward. So I remember how exciting he was uh, to watch as a as a player. I didn't get a chance to play on him, um, but I certainly enjoyed watching some of his highlight tapes. Uh, when I, when we sort of reviewed some of the games or you happened to be watching on the weekend, he, he did, had a great skill set and, and, and had a significant impact on the footy club. Um, Bruzy, your first season was the first time we played two games in the Northern Territory. Um, as a coach, how do you feel about those Northern Territory games? Um, to you, is it an annoyance or do you think the club can get something out of it other than the obvious financial benefits? Yeah, I think as a coach, you understand. You've got to understand the mechanics of how an organisation works. You've got to understand the commercial reality of where you're at as a footy club. And I think when I arrived, you know, I understood we needed to make money and I understood, you know, I guess part of my role too was, you know, as a brand ambassador for the footy club and someone that obviously had won a premiership. And, you know, that was part of what I had to do was, was become the face of the footy club. Um, I think as you improve as a football club, you've got to be careful of where you are commercially in terms of where you're playing because if you if you're down the bottom yeah it doesn't have as much impact but if you're if you're a you know a, a, a six to ten team a win either way can make a, a win or a loss either way can make a massive difference to whether you're going to play finals and if you play finals you know i suspect most of the main sponsors have a um a clause in their contract that they've got to pay more money if you make the 80 they've got to pay more money if you make the, the final four and you know, they've got to pay more money if you win a premiership. So I think you've got to be a bit more careful when you get to that area that, you know, you're not compromising your football department, you're not compromising your ability to, to win games of football. Having said that, if you're a better team, you're more likely to win in you know, in the in Alice, and you're more likely to win in 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 Darwin, as we've seen, you know, this year with a great win over Adelaide. So it is a balancing act. Um, I tend to think once you get to towards the top of the ladder, you, your football's got to take a more priority, and you, you've got to make sure you get that right. Um, because as as you guys are fans, you want to see the team winning, you know. And if you're winning, you're playing finals, and then the commercial side of it looks after itself. But there is a balance. So when I first arrived, I understood we had to play there. I guess now if I'm Simon Goodwin and coaching, you've got to start to think about, okay, what's the best thing for our footy team? Um, And that has to be the priority for the Melbourne Footy Club now. And from your perspective, if you had to choose one, uh, would you choose Alice or Darwin? Oh, look, I don't think it really matters, to be honest, because it's it's essentially an away game anyway. So it doesn't really matter 
you know, where that one away game would be. And look, to be honest, I really enjoyed going up there. And, and the other thing, when you're a young team, it's not actually bad to get away. You know, what I found when I was coaching the Swans, being away every second week was actually good because you're getting to eat with the players. The players are getting to eat with each other. You can jump on a different table for dinner or breakfast. You can sit around and talk to guys. So it's actually not a bad part of your development as a young footy club because you get to sit down with Christian Petraka or Angus Brayshaw or you know, Jesse Hogan, you know, when, when maybe you wouldn't because they're at home and they're having dinner and they, they leave training or whatever. So there's the real opportunity around it. So, again, I'm, I'm supportive of it. But I think, you know, when you get to the point where Melbourne are at at the moment, your football has to be the priority and you have to say what's best for our football because if you get that right, then you win premierships and you play in grand finals and you make top four, top eight. Um, Rosie, after six wins in the previous two years, we won 21 in your time and the club has further improved since. Uh, what would you like your legacy to be as the Melbourne coach? Oh, it's funny. I don't, I don't know. I don't really sort of... I think the most pleasing thing that I get personally, because I don't really... I mean, everyone's going to think about me how they want to think about me, to be honest. They're going to make a personal decision as to you know, what they saw in my time at Melbourne Footy Club was it successful or was it not successful? So that's the individual. But when I went to the game on Monday and, and see the number of kids with Melbourne jumpers on, that's the most pleasing thing because I think the letters I got in my last year were probably the most pleasing thing. Thanks, Paul, for what you've done. My, my son, my daughter can now wear their jumper to school. Yes. I reckon that that's the most pleasing thing for me. And when I went to the Queen's birthday in 85,000 and when I was walking into the stadium to go to the chairman's and just seeing all the kids wear the jumpers, I must admit that was the biggest thing that I felt walking into the stadium thinking, yeah, this is great. This is this is fantastic to, to the parents and, and the last best and fairest. When I, you know, the, the people thanking me at the club and saying, look, my, my son and daughter now wear their jumper with pride. That's the thing that I'll probably most take away from the time at Melbourne, the transformation. Because I understand as a parent that the worst thing you can have, not worst thing, but one of the worst things you have is with your kids is when they're wearing a, you know, if you're a Melbourne supporter and they've now got a Carlton jumper, a Collingwood jumper, a Hawthorne jumper. And, you know, I guess that's the legacy you, you want to leave to your kids, that they can follow the team that you've, you've followed yourself. So that, that personally, and I can only speak personally, is probably the greatest thing that I'll take away that people would thanking me for what I've done and, and more particularly were thanking me for the fact that their kids could wear their jumpers to school. And as I said, going to, to Queen's birthday and seeing the thousands and thousands of kids that were walking around the, the ground with their Melbourne jumpers on, that's probably the thing that I'll take away personally from my time at, at Melbourne. Well, Paul, we really want to thank you uh, for coming on the Demonland podcast tonight, uh, considering how busy you are with media and family commitments. And I personally want to thank you on behalf of all Demon supporters for having a huge hand in saving this uh, great club that we all love so much. Uh, you helped, as you said, you helped make going to the footy an enjoyable experience again. And for that, we are forever grateful for. Thank you. Uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It's been, uh, been fantastic uh, going down memory lane and talking about where the club's at. And uh, As a Melbourne fan now, uh, it, it is it's exciting to go to the footy and watch the team play. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Well, that was Rusey. What a great interview that was. I just want to thank Super Mercado for joining me for the interview after Grapeviney was ab- unable to do so uh, due to work commitments. But I also must thank my co-host, Grapeviney, for providing a lot of those great questions that we put to Paul. Uh, But most of all, I want to thank uh, Paul Ruse. Um, 
not just for everything he's done for this club, but for providing us with the opportunity to talk with him because, as we're all aware, he's a very busy man and giving us that time was truly something that I'll never forget. Um, I was lucky enough last year to interview one of my teenage idols in Alan Jakovic, but Ruzi also rates very highly up there for being one of my heroes in my adult years. Um, I don't think uh, words can express the admiration and thanks that I and all supporters of this club have for the man, um, along with uh, Peter Jackson. He dragged this club uh, off its knees. Uh, he made going to the football fun again by turning our club into a competitive team, you know, and making the Melbourne Demons relevant again. So, and you know what, I, I dream of the day that Ruzi, you know, can look on with pride as the boys lift the cup uh, in the air, hopefully one day. Uh, well, we were going to discuss the... Queen's birthday, I almost said uh, massacre, uh, the Queen's birthday game tonight, but neither of my co-hosts could make it, uh, so we'll forget that that one ever happened. We'll be back um, next week, um, and I think we'll probably um, we'll probably just do, you know, sort of a mid-year, uh, mid-season review. We might go player by player and just assess where they and the team are at. And what we can look forward to in the back half of the year as we hopefully make a tilt towards our first finals appearance in over a decade. Uh, once again, um, thank you to Paul Ruse and thank you for listening. Enjoy the bye weekend and uh, we'll see you again next week. Come on, those demons. <laughs>